Today on the Matt Wall Show, the government at every level is covering every square inch of the country in rainbow flags. This includes the streets in our city, but one rainbow flag mural in the middle of the roadway of one city has been defaced with tire marks. Is this the worst hate crime in human history? Obviously, we'll talk about it. Also, the Biden administration celebrates International Women's Day by recognizing 11 of the, courage, of the most courageous women in the world, and one of those courageous women of course, is a man. Plus, Hillary Clinton worries that our coming climate change apocalypse will have a disproportionate impact on women. Kamala Harris introduces a new phrase, climate mental health. And in our daily cancellation, I must once again deal with a YouTuber who uh, did his best to debunk my arguments against child gender transition and obviously failed miserably. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. You know, in the economy uh, these days, everyone is just trying to survive. And if you own a business, the past few years especially have been uh, a bumpy ride, to say the least, from COVID lockdowns to Biden inflation. You could probably use a break, and innovation refunds can help with that. If your business has five or more employees and managed to survive COVID, well, you could be eligible to receive a payroll tax rebate of up to $26,000 per employee through the employee retention credit. This is not a loan. Uh, there's no payback. It's a refund of your taxes. But you have to go to GetRefunds.com to find out about it. Their team of tax attorneys are highly trained in this little-known payroll tax refund program. And they've already returned $1 billion to businesses. And they can help you, too. They do all the work with no charge up front. And they simply share a percentage of the cash that they get uh, for you. Businesses of all types can qualify, including those who took PPP. Uh, nonprofits, even those that had increases in sales, can still qualify. You can see if your business qualifies for ERC assistance in about eight minutes. Just go to GetRefunds.com. Click on Qualify Me and answer a few questions. This payroll tax refund is only available for a limited time. Don't miss out. Go to GetRefunds.com. GetRefunds.com. Every country has its flag. Every nation, its national symbols. Japan has the red dot inside a white rectangle. Mexico has the red, white, and green vertical stripes with its national coat of arms in the center. The Russian flag consists of uh, white, blue, and red horizontal stripes. And uh, many different flags across the world. And then we, of course, have our national flag, which is the gay pride flag, the rainbow. The pride flag was, was invented in the late 70s by a gay activist at the, at the urging of his friend, Harvey Milk. And Harvey Milk, of course, is the San Francisco politician and bureaucrat who uh, had a penchant for molesting drug-addicted underage boys. So it was his idea that he passed along to his friend, an activist, um, and that was a man named Gilbert Baker, who was a radical leftist and drag queen who, for a time, was a member of the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, a blasphemous group of cross-dressing men who run around dressed like sexualized, sacrilegious nuns. Um, the flag was a, was a political statement. It was a far, far left political statement from the very beginning. And it still is, of course, which is why it's changed over the years to accommodate the political needs of the far left. Today, of course, the, the, pride, the pride flag, which was always tacky and gaudy in appearance, now looks something like uh, something that was maybe designed by a blind schizophrenic. It is, in appearance, as ugly and objectionable as the agenda it represents. The left continually defiles its own flag, adding clashing shapes, shapes and colors, making uglier what was already hideous in the first place. The flag defaces itself to symbolize what it seeks to do to the culture, essentially. You know, at one time, it was flown primarily at pride marches and far-left political rallies, but that has changed in recent years. Now the leftist regime that controls our country, um, our cultural elites, 
have taken this unsightly banner and elevated it literally and figuratively. They have made it into our new national flag, the flag of the United States of gay, we might say. For the, for the stars and stripes, what was supposed to be our actual national flag, we're meant to kneel, to turn away, to uh, have a conversation about its problematic history. But for the pride flag, we're ordered to stand at attention, honor it, show it deference. That's why the pride flag now flies over our embassies abroad. It's why the White House has been lit up in its colors. It's why the flag flies over state houses and cabinet departments and the FBI headquarters. Flies over school buildings. It flies inside classrooms. The government at every level, from local to state to federal, now waves this flag. But they don't always wave it. We should be clear. Because sometimes they paint it in the street where it can't really wave. Many cities across the country have taken to uh, painting enormous pride flag murals in the middle of their streets and intersections. Ironically, it, you know, it, is, it is certain, I would say, that all of these cities that have painted these pride flags in the street, they've also issued various PSAs and you know, put up signs warning about the dangers of distracted driving. And I know that because you, you find that in every city in America. Because it's, you know, it's really important to pay attention and focus while you're on the road so that you can be blinded by the rainbow landmine we've painted in the middle of the intersection. Most recently, the city of Fort Lauderdale paved um, essentially one of its entire streets in the clashing colors of the gay rainbow, but then disaster struck. Apparently, this mural, which again was painted directly on the road where cars drive, was defaced by tire marks. Almost as if cars had driven over it on the road, if you can imagine. Here's 7 News of Miami with the, the uh, shocking story. Listen. Well, it's a brand new installation in the city of Fort Lauderdale, a pride flag, and it was already vandalized, not once, but possibly twice. Only on 6 tonight, it seems that a group of men on bicycles may have targeted the flag first. Alyssa joins us now with more, and, and police are now set to review this other incident. Alyssa? Right, well, police are now looking into that latest video. In fact, police, Fort Lauderdale police, were back out here just about an hour ago to pick up that new surveillance video. We're understanding that they're going to then review that video and look to see whether they believe that this was another intentional act of vandalism against this pride flag behind me. New video tonight raising even more suspicions after a new pride flag installation in the city of Fort Lauderdale was found defaced, left covered in skid marks. Fort Lauderdale police was already investigating the vandalism after surveillance video from the nearby Meriwether Resort showed a pickup truck on February 28th doing a blowout over the length of the flag, leaving dark tire tracks behind, all while the passenger of his car gets out and films. I just see people that just have time on their hands that are destructing property and, and spewing hate. Mary Jo Whitehurst, who manages the Meriwether, also found this surveillance video from a few days before that. Guests had mentioned bicyclists leaving behind skid marks. The new video, which she only discovered today, is still being reviewed by police. It shows at least three young men on bicycles circling the flag, leaving tire marks several times. Yes, how dare that guy in the pickup truck stop others from living their lives by leaving tire marks on the road? I mean, how exactly is 
anyone in the world prevented from living their lives or prevented from doing anything at all by tire marks on a, tire marks on a gay pride flag in the middle of the street? I mean, how, how does that work exactly? The man says that uh, the vandal has scuffed up someone's life. Well, whose life precisely? Was the mural a, a living being of some kind? Did it cry out in pain as the kids on bicycles rode over top of it? How does that work? Well, however it works, the police are on the case. We know that. They will find the evildoer. Evildoers, actually, there's multiple people. This was, uh, this, look, this was not some minor crime like armed robbery or murder or something like that. This was an act of disrespect against the regime's sacred symbol, and that cannot be allowed to stand. As the mayor of Fort Lauderdale has made clear, such blasphemy will not be tolerated. In a statement, he declared, quote, if they were sending us a message, I have a message to send back to them. You are not welcome. Take your hatred somewhere else. We will find the perpetrators. We will track them down. How heroic. This is uh, basically the mayor's George Bush moment, standing atop the rubble of the towers, promising to bring, bring the, the terrorists to justice. Although, of course, this is way worse than 9-11. goes without saying. To make matters worse, this uh, hate crime committed against the road is not an isolated incident. Sh shockingly, many of the other pride flags painted on streets across America have also wound up with tire marks of their own, uh, leading to manhunts to track down the culprits. Law enforcement in places like Reno and Atlanta and other cities have launched investigations into similar incidents. So this is, this is the process now. This is what they do. The cities paint rainbows all over the, the, the street and then wait for tire marks to end up on the rainbows. And then they send the police to go find uh, who was the, the, the uh, dastardly villain who drove on the street over the thing that they put in the street. Just a few months ago, elsewhere in Florida, a man was arrested for uh, defiling a pride flag painted across an entire intersection. The culprit, as local media reports, Alexander Jarek, broke down in tears in court and uh, pled for forgiveness as his lawyer in an effort to explain his actions, because of course his actions were so heinous that they needed to be explained this way, his lawyer, according to the reports, compared him to the mentally disabled character from Of Mice and Men. That's what his lawyer said. The judge ultimately sentenced him to probation, community service, and mental health screening. Because if you make tire marks on a gay pride flag, if you disrespect a gay pride flag, then obviously you're crazy, and so you have to get a mental health screening. And that wasn't it either. He, he also forced uh, the guy to write a 25-page essay about the shooting at Pulse, which is the gay club in Orlando. Now, this is likely the harshest sentence ever given to anyone for the crime of making tire marks on a public street, but it wasn't enough for gay activists in the city. Nicholas Coppola, who's a board member of the... Um, Palm Beach County's LGBTQ Community Center said that he should have been charged with a hate crime. In a very revealing comparison, he said that Jarek's actions were no different from desecrating a church. But Palm Beach County uh, State Attorney Dave Ehrenberg explained that the law would only allow hate crime charges if Jarek selected a specific victim based on sexual orientation, yet the victim here was the city, technically, and as Ehrenberg clarified, and I'm quoting him now, the city has no sexual orientation. Yes, we've reached a point where that needs to be explained. Now, let's not be coy about this. 
Yes, it should be expected that anything painted in the street will end up scuffed and tire marked. That should be expected. But also, yes, clearly from the video, the tire marks on the Fort Lauderdale mural were put there on purpose. I mean, this was an intentional act of vandalism. It wasn't. The guy was, the guy was, uh, was, was obviously doing that intentionally. You can tell that from the video. And to that, I say, okay. Now, I'm not endorsing the destruction of public property. I certainly am not encouraging anyone to engage in such behavior. I couldn't say that. But, but what is it that the left said about the BLM rioters? You know, the, the ones that, that caused quite a bit more uh, destruction of public property. Um, what was it? it was, uh, they're speaking in the language of the unheard. That was it, right? Well, here you go. I would say something similar in this case. Lots of unheard and powerless people are looking around at our country and noticing that this far-left political symbol is being shoved in our faces everywhere we turn, including and especially by our, by our governing authorities, and it's being elevated to a place of greater importance and status than the American flag itself, and these people are disgusted by it, and they're sick of it, and they are beyond frustrated, and they should be. Let's just put this plainly. The pride flag does not deserve our respect. In fact, it deserves our disrespect. It deserves our contempt and mockery. It is not the flag of gay people, okay? That's not what it is. Gay people in America, um, they already have a flag. It's called the American flag. It's the flag we all share or are supposed to share. The pride flag, which which was invented by a far-left activist drag queen, represents not a person or a people or a community, but an agenda, a political and cultural agenda. It always has. It has from the very beginning. It still does now. And today, nearly all of the most depraved and perverse attacks on children, on tradition, on decency, on common sense are waged under this banner. That's what it signifies. Okay, The gay pride flag signifies drag queens dancing for toddlers, uh, males invading women's bathrooms. It it signifies castration drugs given to children. It signifies the destruction of the nuclear family. When government officials send that thing up the flagpole or paint its ridiculous colors in the street, that is what they're promoting. It's what they're advertising. It is the cause they want us to salute. Not only should should we refuse to salute it, but we should treat it with disdain. We should treat it as a hate symbol because that's what it is. They fly the flag, that flag, because they hate you and your values and what you believe and everything you stand for. And so we should respond in kind to this symbol. In other words, we should give the pride flag all of the respect that the left shows the American flag. Let's just put it that way. Now let's get to our five headlines. You know, men don't like going to the doctor. It's time-consuming, it's expensive, and in some cases, it can be embarrassing. RexMD is a trusted leader in men's telehealth. They make it easy and inexpensive to get generic and also branded Viagra or Cialis online. No waiting rooms, no embarrassing trips to the doctor, no insurance, no co-pays. With just a few clicks of a button, you can talk to a medical professional, create a personalized plan, and get the products discreetly shipped straight to your door within two days. RexMD doesn't just offer ED medication. They also offer medications that help with hair growth, 
uh, pain relief, sleep aid. Unlike other brands, RexMD is FDA approved, clinically tested, and a U.S. licensed pharmacy as well. RexMD has already helped over 300,000 guys gain confidence quickly and conveniently. They're here to help you too. You can take advantage of their best deal yet at rexmd.com Walsh and save up to 90% off by paying only $2 per dosage. Starter packs of generic Viagra Cialis are now available to get started. That's rexmd.com Walsh for up to 90% off. Go to rexmd.com for more details and safety information. The Biden administration, this is Daily Wire report, Biden administration awarded a biological man uh, an award for courage in honor of International Women's Day during a Wednesday ceremony at the White House. Alba Rueda, a man who identifies as a woman, received an International Women of Courage Award alongside 10 women from uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and uh, First Lady Jill Biden. Rueda is Argentina's special envoy for sexual orientation and gender identity. I'm sorry, wait. Uh, special envoy for sexual orientation and gender identity. This is what we're doing now. You need, you need countries need an, an envoy for sexual orientation. Nobody knows what that means or what that actually entails, but uh, that's what it is. And it's also the country's first trans-identifying politician to hold a senior government position. According to the State Department, the award is meant for extraordinary women from around the world who are working to build a brighter future for all of us. I think we have a video of that. Let's check it out. In Argentina, Alba Ruada is a transgender woman who was kicked out of classrooms, barred for sitting for exams, refused job opportunities, subjected to violence, and rejected by her family. But in the face of these challenges, she worked to end violence and discrimination against the LGBTQI plus community in Argentina. So there you have it. Um, only 11 women earned the International Courage Award. These are women from all over the world. So these are these are supposed to be the most courageous women in the entire world. Right? Billions of women, and we're giving the award to 11 of them, and one of them was a man. So what does that tell you? This is uh, obviously yet again womanhood being appropriated, women being demeaned and excluded, um, and all of that. And you know, of course, how I feel about that. But I've been, you know, I've been thinking about something else too. Because yesterday was International Women's Day. Well, the whole month is, is Women's History Month, um, which is, uh, which of course, just another opportunity to celebrate men. But not men, because we can't celebrate men who identify as men. Those are, no, we can't do that. But we can celebrate men who identify as women. Um, and I've been thinking about, about this and, we, we always talk about the appropriation of womanhood. And yet, if you notice, we rarely, if ever, talk about the appropriation of manhood. And why is that? Because after all, there are plenty of females transitioning the other way, right? Uh, in fact, that, that is more common, at least among, among kids, among adolescents. And I don't know, across the board, including kids and adults, you know, how it all balances out. But, but, but certainly in, in the coming years, Given this deluge, this uh, this just tidal wave of adolescent girls who are quote unquote transitioning, um, if the scales have not already tipped in that direction, they will. So, got a, a lot of uh, of girls and women, females, who are transitioning to, uh, you know, to uh, try to appear as men. Yet we aren't concerned really about um, manhood, about masculinity being appropriated. And why is that? And I think the answer is this. I, I'm concerned 
about how masculinity is treated in society, degraded, cheapened, shamed, etc. But the great threat isn't really women becoming men or pretending to. It doesn't seem to be as much of a threat that direction as it is the other direction, when men become women. And I think it's because the motivation to transition tends to be very different for males than it is for females. So females, especially adolescent girls, infected by this social contagion, they transition as an act of rejection of their femininity, of their femaleness. Um, it is, uh, it's self-loathing. It is self-rejection. And that's why you see that, that often they take the hormones, they have the breasts chopped off, but they don't always make, and oftentimes they don't make any serious attempt to actually appear as men. Instead, they end up as settling as kind of defeminized females. And that's a lot of the transition, quote unquote, that we see of, um, of, of girls. It's not becoming boys or trying to become boys, or, but it, becoming a defeminized female. Um, there's a reason why you don't see many girls fully embracing the, the kind of masculine cartoon stereotype as men do when they try to transition to become women. They become like cartoons of women. You don't see it as much the other way. Girls, they're not, they're not trying out for the football teams. They're not, uh, they're not going to the, the gym and, and, you know, and, 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 and all of that. Um, there's some of that, but there's not much because they aren't actually interested in in trying to be boys, they just want to not be girls. They want to not be who they are. On the other hand, the men who transition, and this is especially the case for men, the, the adults, often they're motivated by a fetishizing of femininity, and they don't want to fully reject their manhood. There's a reason why, quote unquote, bottom surgery for men is, is still relatively rare. It's more common now than it used to be, but it's still relatively rare. So a huge number of these men who go around identifying as women, uh, they haven't gone through the, the surgical transition because they still want all of those parts. Um, that's because they don't reject their manhood completely. They just want to absorb womanhood in order to satisfy their desires. This is not a blanket statement that covers everyone. There's plenty of self-loathing among men who identify as trans. There's perhaps some fetishizing of manhood by women who try to become men. So there's, uh, there's some of that goes both ways. But I think that this is a, a, a trend or a noticeable pattern that we should be investigating more. All right. So two clips that may seem unrelated, but they're really not. First, here's Hillary Clinton talking about climate change. And finally, I'm so glad that Elena Zelenska is here because women are... <clears throat> women and, and children are the primary victims of conflict and of climate change. And there is no place that unfortunately, tragically shows us that more dramatically than Ukraine today, but there are a lot of other conflicts, a lot of other uh, challenges that we have to uh, take into account as we look at gender apartheid in Afghanistan, uh, the persecution and oppression of girls and women exercising their freedom of choice in Iran and so many other places. Women are primarily affected by climate change. So the world 
The world's coming to an end. We're all going to drown. The ice caps are going to melt. Women most affected. Maybe so, but you know, that's why we shouldn't have destroyed gender roles, Hillary. Have you thought about that? Because if we still had gender roles, we still had concepts like chivalry, then women would be guaranteed first crack at the lifeboats when uh, the ice caps melt and the whole world is flooded. Because that's the way it used to be. But you got rid of the gender roles, so that means we're all drowning now. Or it's just going to be a mad rush for the lifeboats, and uh, whoever's strongest makes it in. And so in that way, women are the most affected. But be that as it may, she says women are the most affected by climate change. Here's Cori Bush pulling kind of a similar move in a different context. But uh, let's listen to this. You describe that the price increases had a disproportionate effect on black, brown, and low-income communities, uh, families. How did the administration's actions and the ensuring the ensuing uh, drop in gas prices, how did it help those same families? And while there are a number of factors that affect uh, the price of oil, in an interview uh, with Oxford, I believe, uh, Dr. B did concede that uh, the strategic use of uh, SPR did have an impact. Uh, it's hard to quantify and hard to tell, but it definitely had an impact in the price of oil. We need to focus on making more public investments to lower our energy demand by taking actions such as expanding public transit and installing energy efficient technology like electric heat pumps. Mr. Drummer, how does making investments in people through safe energy systems and people benefit climate justice and energy security? Uh, one of the exciting things uh, from the uh, okay, Inflation Reduction Act. I think we've seen enough of that. Um, so you have climate change. World's coming to an end. Women most affected by that. And then gas prices increase. And, uh, and black and brown people are the most affected by the, the increase in gas prices. Now, I've never seen at the gas station, like, different prices listed depending on the color of your skin. And so if, you're, if you have darker skin, you got to pay more. I've never seen that. I'll say one thing for sure. If that exists at any gas station... If Cori Bush has encountered that at a gas station, then I absolutely oppose it. I, I, I do not believe in racialized pricing for gas. But I don't think that that actually exists anywhere. anywhere. So what that means is that like, gas prices increasing, and it, has, it's, it's, it affects everybody the same. Okay, we're, we, and, and Well, anyone who drives anyway, if you don't drive, then I suppose you're not as affected by it. But if you drive around, you're affected by it. Prices are the same for everybody. But what you notice is that these people on the left, they can't even pretend to care about everyone. They used to pretend. They used to at least pretend. They, they, they put on a little bit of an act to pretend that they were concerned about all people and all Americans and all citizens. They don't do that anymore. They don't even pretend. They, any kind, any problem, whatever the problem is, they need to find a way to position the problem as an attack on the marginalized, quote-unquote, marginalized groups, their favorite groups, in order for them to pay attention to it. They have to justify paying attention to any problem at all by making an argument that this, is, that this problem um, disproportionately impacts their favorite groups. And if they can't find a way to do that, if they can't find a way to argue if you take any problem at all, whatever the whatever the whatever the uh, whatever the issue is, whatever the problem is, even if it's a made-up problem like climate change, um, if they can't find a way to to claim 
that this is really, uh, you know, in some ways inherently racist or sexist, then they'll just ignore it. That, of course, is the Ohio train derailment. And that, that's how you explain the reaction by the federal government to the, the uh, Ohio train derailment, or, or rather the lack of reaction until they were forced. Eventually, they were forced to pretend to care, but it took them about three weeks. Because they looked at it and, and they said, well, you know, this is, a, this is a working class town in Ohio. It's a white working class town. It, it would be very difficult for us to argue that this train derailment right outside of a white working class town disproportionately impacts black people or women or, you know, trans people. And because they couldn't figure out a way to make that argument, men just didn't talk about it. Because they don't care about all Americans and they're, they're done even pretending that they do. Speaking of the climate, here is Kamala Harris with uh, a new leftist buzz phrase that you can add to, the, uh, to your dictionary now if you're keeping track at home. Here it is. I mean, one of the young leaders was talking to me about climate mental health. I said, tell me what's going on with your peers. Climate mental health. And she talked, I said, I think I understand that, but unpack it for me. And she talked about how her peers are thinking about it. One example is, you know, whether when they're ready, could they start a family? Worried about what that would mean. And the stress of it. They were talking about it in terms of their peers trying to figure out, you know, they're going to have to get a job and they're going to have to make a living, but what can they do and how can they adapt the education that they're having now to their activism? Climate mental health. So we've heard about climate racism. We've heard about climate sexism uh, when the climate, you know, uh, is, is racist or sexist. And now there is climate mental health that she is going to add to the lexicon. And aside from, and, and of course, she, she only is able to speak in buzz phrases and and uh, and buzzwords, which is why you, you hear even there, climate. We have to unpack that. That's that phrase alone is already nails on the chalkboard. Let's unpack it. It's even worse than when someone says "lean in." I got we got to lean into this issue. Let's lean into this issue and really unpack it. And then she throws climate, mental health in there, and uh, it's it's simply too much to bear. But also, every time I hear about this, about these kids that are, um, their mental health is being affected by what they hear about the climate, about worries that the world's coming to an end and that uh, all the coastal cities are going to be underwater by the time that, you know, these kids are old enough. Um, and I, I hear this and my first instinct is to assume that it's completely made up. I mean, not that what they're claiming is going to happen with the climate is made up. Well, we know that's made up. But to assume that these stories about kids that are devastated by it and are, are like up at night and anxious and stressed out and they're depressed because they're worried about the climate. Every time I hear that, my instinct is to say, well, that's, that, that doesn't exist. There aren't kids like that. You're making this up. And I assume that because, you know, my own kids, I'm only around normal kids. My own kids are normal. I'm around normal kids, normal parents. So I'm only around normal people. And uh, that's, that's who I choose to, to be around. Um, and among normal people, this is not a thing, okay? You go, like normal people, you just, you, you take your kids out, you go to a playground uh, in, some, in some just neighborhood, suburban neighborhood, and normal people out at the playground, normal kids. 
No one is talking about climate change. The kids aren't aren't sitting on the on the jungle gym, um, lamenting the fact that the, the climate is changing and everyone's going to die. So I tend to think that it's all made up, but then I realize that um, these people they have some of them anyway have kids of their own. A lot of these leftist climate chicken littles they do have kids, some of them anyway, and uh, and so. They are actually creating, this is intentional, they're creating a generation of kids, trying to create a generation of kids who really are up at night worried about the climate. So I I would much prefer to think that this is made up and it's a lie and they're making this up and these kids don't exist. That uh, there's there's, there's no kid that's actually feeling burdened by the, the weather. But I think the situation is much worse than that and there are some kids, probably a lot of them, who, who actually are having their mental health affected by this. But their mental health is not being affected by the climate. Their mental health is being affected by what they, what they are told about the climate. They're being told by the adults in their life that the world's coming to an end. And yeah, I, you, know, you don't have your, your future. You're not going to really have a future. The future you're going to grow up in is going to be terrible because of the climate. Uh, yeah, I would, I would think that if you do tell kids that and you hammer it into their heads... Um, yeah, that probably would affect their mental health, I would think. And it is a, it's an insidious thing to do. Nick Cannon is infamous for having lots of kids. Uh, I think he has 12 kids now. And I say infamous not because there's anything wrong with having lots of kids. I, you know, as a father of six, I, I wouldn't be able to claim that. But because he has them by a bunch of different women who he isn't married to. And now his uh, his penchant for creating fatherless homes has led to or maybe has led to this show. Watch the commercial here. Guys, you're on a game show right now. Kevin Hart and Nick Cannon are coming to E! for the mother of all game shows. Having my baby with Nick Cannon! You got Pyro? Yeah! You're going to get some contestants that want to have your baby. We're not kidding around. Eeny, meeny, money. Let's go! Who's Having My Baby with Nick Cannon, hosted by Kevin Hart, this spring, only on E. Who's Having My... So, contestants competing to see who can have Nick Cannon's baby. This is literally something out of idiocracy. We are... We're at the point now where... People in charge of this stuff—they just—they watched the movie *Idiocracy* and they took it as a—they took it as a as a as a plan, you know, as a. They—they uh, they saw it not as a warning of the future, but as goals to achieve. Now, I have seen—I've so I've seen conflicting reporting on this, and some outlets have reported. I think Variety, for example, reported that um, that this is a real show that they really are going to do this. Now, other outlets are saying that it's fake. Daily Wire reports that it's fake. Uh, that it's some kind of skit for something else they're doing, which maybe it is. I'd like to think that it is. But either way, it's it's disgusting either way because the whole joke, right? What's the joke here? The joke is that this deadbeat, Nick Cannon, this scumbag deadbeat has lots of kids that he doesn't raise. Look, I'm creating fatherless homes. Isn't that hilarious? Isn't that, isn't that so funny and quirky? No, it isn't, you dirtbag. You're behaving like an animal, okay? Copulating with whoever is willing and, and creating lots of offspring that you don't raise, that's what animals do, okay? 
That's, that's this is one of the things that's supposed to separate us from animals is that we don't do that. Now, that may come as news to you, Nick. But as, as human beings, we create children and we get married and we raise them. So there's really nothing, uh, really nothing funny about it. Now, somebody has lots of kids and they marry the woman that they, that they uh, make the kids with and they raise the kids. And uh, we want to have a, a fun time with the fact they have so many kids. That's fine. Again, it's, that's, that's me. But creating a bunch of fatherless homes, not exactly funny. Um, but I did find this part of the Daily Wire report about this. So the, the, whole, the whole idea of like having fun with the fact that he's creating a bunch of fatherless kids who are going to suffer the consequence, that, that's not funny. This is funny, though. This is the part that I think it's not supposed to be funny. Um, so Daily Wire lists the kids that, uh, that this guy has. And let me just read this part. Nick Cannon shares twins, Moroccan and Monroe, with ex-wife Mariah Carey. Sons, Golden Sagon and Rise Messiah Cannon, and daughter, Powerful Queen, with Brittany Bell. Twins, Zion Moxaliden and Zillion Air, that's Zillion, one word, H-E-I-R, Air, Zillion Air, and daughter, Beautiful Zeppelin, with Abby De La Rosa, then also son, Legendary Love, with Brie uh, Tisi, and then daughter, Onyx Ice Cole, with Lanisha Cole. Those are the names that he's given these kids. I like especially Zion Moxaliden, which sounds like some kind of prescription drug. You got that from me. He's watching, he's up late one night, and some, one of the, some commercial for an antidepressant came on, and he decided to give that name to his kids. I don't know what this is. Uh, this also actually isn't really funny on second thought, because these are kids who not only are fatherless, but now they've been given these ridiculous names as well on top of it. Maybe this is kind of the, the boy name Sue strategy deployed on a massive scale. Well, you're not going to be there to raise the kids, so you give them a ridiculous name to try to toughen them up because you know they're going to get made fun of it for, for it in school. I don't know if that's what he's going for, but uh, that would be my theory anyway. All right, one other thing before we get to the comment section. New York Post uh, has this headline. Woke moviegoers say cocaine bear not for kids. It encourages drugs. Article says woke moviegoers saw the new cocaine bear and they think it's way out of line. Cocaine Bear has been uh, getting rave reviews, raking in $8.65 million on its opening night, according to uh, IMDb's Box Office Mojo, but not everyone is so fond of the movie. Some woke viewers complain that the new, the new film is encouraging drug use and is not suitable for kids. The movie, which is rated R for bloody violence and gore, is loosely based on a true story. In 1985, a bear was found dead in the uh, Georgia woods after consuming a drug smuggler's stash of cocaine that was dropped from a plane. Okay, to say that this was even loosely based on a true story, that is, uh, I mean, the word loosely is doing a lot of work there. So the only similarity between the movie and the real story is that there was a bear a long time ago, or decades ago, that apparently consumed cocaine and died. Uh, in the movie, the, the bear consumes cocaine and becomes this super, becomes like this uh, supernatural monster and then hunts down and uh, viciously gores and mutilates and, and, uh, and murders a whole bunch of people. So... Loose, very, very loosely based. Some moviegoers were not satisfied with, with what they saw. As extreme movie enthusiast that I am, I found this movie was lacking some soul and desire. One viewer criticized. Um, and then uh, some other ones were saying that it wasn't appropriate for kids and encourages drug use. Okay. 
Here's the only point I want to make about this. Obviously, moviegoers should not be surprised that a movie called Cocaine Bear has drug use in it. I mean, the title of the movie is basically A Bear Does Drugs, the movie. So it shouldn't surprise you when you sit down and you watch and say, this bear's doing drugs in this movie. That said, can we not do this with the term woke? Can we, can we please not? Because being concerned about drug use in a movie is not woke. Being worried that a film is not appropriate for children is not woke. It, it's silly in this case because the movie isn't made for kids and the content is not hidden. It's very clear what the movie is. I couldn't be more clear. It's one of those movies that, uh, you know, just based on the, it's like snakes on a plane kind of, based on the title alone, you know everything you need to know about the film. But, uh, but it's not woke. And I am a little bit worried. I see this happening a little bit where th this is what's happening with the term woke. It's being expanded in this way to the point where if anyone has any kind of like moral concern or especially when it comes to entertainment, anyone who says that any kind of entertainment isn't appropriate or, or it has some problems, automatically it becomes woke. Now that is not woke. It's actually the opposite. Woke is bringing your kid to a movie with drug use and inappropriate content and not caring. Okay? Woke is, is intentionally exposing your children to inappropriate material. That's what woke is. Being, being overly concerned about inappropriate uh, uh, material for kids, that is, that's, that's anti-woke. That's the opposite of woke. And I wish that was our main problem as a culture. I wish we still lived in a culture where you could even claim that uh, people are a little bit overly concerned or too concerned. They, they overreact to inappropriate content. I wish that was the case, but that's not the case here at all. All right, let's get to the comment section. You know, especially historically, when you have a, a job opening as a business, it can be really difficult to fill that role, to find someone who's a qualified applicant. But uh, it doesn't have to be that difficult, especially these days, because there's ZipRecruiter. If you're hiring, you can quickly find the right person by heading to ZipRecruiter.com Walsh and try it for free. ZipRecruiter's matching technology excels at finding the most qualified candidates for a wide range of roles. See a candidate you like? Well, you can easily send them a personal invite so that they're more likely to apply. Their user-friendly dashboard makes it easy to filter, review, and rate your candidates all from one place. Let ZipRecruiter help uh, find the best people for all the roles of your business. Four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. You can see for yourself if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Walsh to try ZipRecruiter for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash W-A-L-S-H. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Jordan says, I love how Matt makes fun of plushies while having a walrus plushie in the background on the left-hand side of this video. Well, that's entirely different. That's completely, that's a different sort of thing, Jordan. Okay, because, yeah, I make fun of adults who uh, buy plushies or have plushies unless it's one that I'm selling. Okay, that, so I, I take a prince, I'm a man of principle, um, and I'm also a capitalist, and so that's, that's the principle here. You absolutely should not own plushies as a grown adult unless you're buying it from me, in which case exceptions can be made. Um, and you can go to dailywire.com shop right now and get your own Walrus plushie, which I very much recommend you do. Kyle says, never apologize for the Valentine's Day massacre. What was said about Mulvaney is spot on and needed to be said. I like that we're calling it that monologue, the, the Valentine's Day massacre. I don't know if this is a thing that's caught on, but, I, but it should. Let's, let it, let's forever 
uh, refer to it as that. Um, and it, and it, you know, Valentine's Day massacre when it's just a monologue about something that may seem a little bit overblown, but I have been told that it was a murderous, genocidal thing. They were just words, but they were murderous and genocidal. And so I think Valentine's Day Massacre actually is appropriate. Bad Mr. Frosty says, I could not imagine being lucky enough to work somewhere as cool as the Daily Wire. Can you imagine actually being able to work there and quitting? I live in North Carolina. If you guys have anything I could do remotely from here, please let me know. I'm with you. It is, I mean, I have to admit, it is pretty great. And and also it's, it's like, it is the best game in town. Um, if you want to do anything, it's like conservative and media, you want to have an impact on the culture in the media, if you want to do anything like that, um, where else are you going to go? So we talked yesterday about the Daily Wire employee who left, because we don't have to rehash all that, but in part because she was upset about some of the things that I've said, some of the things Michael Knowles have said, has said about, uh, about gender ideology, we're too mean, we're too uh, you know, blunt, too whatever. Divisive, I think, in our rhetoric was what was claimed. But, so you, go ahead, you could leave. You know I mean? so no one has, you don't have to stay here. You, you can leave. Um, burning the bridge as you leave, not a smart move. So it's, it's not a, it, it doesn't help us in the cultural fight. It's also not good for you for your career. It's, just, it's a bad idea. Like, I really can't emphasize that enough, by the way. For, for any young people, if you're listening to this, uh, whatever, whatever job you have, whatever you, it doesn't matter if you're in media or not, whatever your job is, um, if you're young right now and you're working a job, you're probably not going to be there for the rest of your life. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna quit. You're going to leave at some point. You're probably going to quit and leave a whole bunch of jobs uh, before maybe you finally settle on one that you'll be at for a while. It's generally how it goes. And it is just, there, there may be very rare exceptions. Okay, if you're at a place and something, something illegal is happening, or you know people are being are being seriously harmed in, in some way, there's something something seriously seriously unethical is happening behind the scenes, and so but now so you feel like you have to expose it, then you're in the position of being like a whistleblower. Okay, so there there could be a situation where you, it's it's it, it's you're called upon morally to be a whistleblower. That's different from quitting and burning a bridge. So putting those kinds of situations to the side. I really cannot urge you enough that, to, to, to understand this, that if, if you're leaving, it is just not a good idea to burn the bridge on the way out, to publicize your complaints about the place where you worked, and all of that. Like, keep it to yourself. For your own sake, keep it to yourself. I know we have the internet, and uh, we're all, I know I, just like I am, we're constantly talking and broadcasting our every opinion and, and everything on the internet. But that, you don't have to do that. It doesn't mean, it's not a requirement, okay? And there are actually things that can happen in your life that you, that you, don't, you shouldn't tell everyone. You don't need to. Um, you really stand to gain nothing from it, but you stand to lose quite a bit. Because also remember that when you, when you burn the bridge and you attack your former employer, yeah, you've burned the bridge with, every, with, with the employer and everybody works there. But also other employers saw you do that. And they're going to keep that in mind when you come to them and say, hey, can I work here? They're going to they're think, well, uh, <laughs> you worked at that other place for a few months and then left and, uh, and uh, insulted your colleagues on the way out the door. Are you going to do that to us? I hear this all the time from, from, uh, from uh People that do, you know, work in HR departments and they do interviews and stuff, and they, they say that even when it's not a public complaint, you know, I've heard I've heard many times that a big red flag when uh, for someone for the for the interviewer 
is when the interviewee comes down and one of the first things they do is start complaining about their former employer, even if the complaints are valid. When the interviewer hears the interviewee going on and on and on about how much they hated the other place, okay, that means that that application, that resume, it's going right in the circular filing bin. Okay, this, this interview's over. We're not interested in you. So just something to keep in mind, a little bit of career advice. Um, Mr. Jake the Cat, the confrontational jerk community. I found my people, a tear in my eye. Thank you. It's, it is, it's, well, I guess we, we need an acronym. CJC, confrontational jerk community. Maybe we can, you know, so we're our, our own victim group now, as soon as we have the acronym. Jillian says, Matt, do you ever wonder why Dave Chappelle, who was one of the funniest people on the planet, suddenly lost all his talent, darkened his skin color, lost two inches in height, and went from having long, skinny fingers to short, pudgy hands? Yeah, me too. I, is this an actual conspiracy theory? That, is, this, is this a thing that, are you making this up? Is this a conspiracy theory that you are, is this the, uh, the birth of a new conspiracy theory, or is this a thing? If I went and Googled it, when I find a bunch of Reddit posts and all these other forums, with this conspiracy, because what is the theory? The theory is what that Dave Chappelle has been replaced by a body snatcher. There's some sort of is, he was killed, and there's a body double now pretending to be Dave Chappelle. That's an interesting conspiracy theory. I don't know what, I don't know why. Um, but uh, but sure, let's let's go with that. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Following the arrival of the Sweet Baby album tease, uh, Sweet Baby Spirit and the Notorious SBG, a new style is taking the culture by storm. Sweet Baby Grunge, Sweet Baby Gangster Rap, whatever you want to call it, it's here. And in honor of its uh, continued success, I'm happy to introduce the latest collectible in the Matt Walsh patch program. That is the Sweet Baby Records patch. Uh, It's all the fun of pop culture with none of the Satan worship or demonic imagery. Uh, it's, very, it's very classy. Like all the patches, it's a very classy patch as well. These are limited editions, so they will sell out. Don't miss your chance to start or add to your collection and reaffirm your commitment to the SPG by donning these highly coveted patches on your clothes, luggage, skin, basically any location in direct proportion to your level of fealty to the gang. Just got to head over to my swag shack at dailywire.com shop to get yours today. Also, what if I told you that there's one book that has done more for literacy than any other book? It has shaped literature, art, culture, government, and countless lives. I'm, of course, referring to the Bible. Uh, you know who else just had an influence on uh, this, this book's had influence on? That, of course, is Jordan Peterson. In addition to his Exodus series, Jordan has a documentary called Logos and Literacy, where he traces the Bible through history to show you the impact it's had on the Western world. It's a really interesting series. Here's the trailer. I was very much struck by how the translation of the biblical writings jump-started the development of literacy across the entire world. Illiteracy was the norm. The pastor's home was the first school, and every morning it would begin with singing. The Christian faith is a singing religion. Probably 80% of scripture memorization today exists only because of what is sung. This is amazing. Here we have a Gutenberg Bible, Bible printed on the press of Johann Gutenberg. Science and religion are opposing forces in the world, but historically that has not been the case. Now the book is available to everyone. From Shakespeare to modern education and medicine and science to to civilization itself. It is the most influential book in all of history, and hopefully people can walk away with at least a sense of that. 
Well, this is the part where I would normally tell you that Logos and Literacy is only for Daily Wire Plus members, but we're making it available for free for everyone. And this, is, this doesn't happen very often, but you got to go to dailywireplus.com. It's only for a limited time, so you can watch Logos and Literacy today. Anyone can at dailywireplus.com. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today we cancel someone named Hunter Avalone. He's apparently a YouTuber and Twitch streamer with a moderately large following, though I'd never heard of him. Uh, it, it came to my attention uh, thanks to a clip posted at Twitter by Addison Smith of OAN. And what came to my attention is that Hunter posted a, a lengthy video to his YouTube channel reacting to my testimony in front of the Tennessee House Committee about their now-passed legislation banning child gender transitions. Hunter is apparently a big fan of child castration. He's a fierce advocate of castrating children. And so, as we'll see, uh, he uh, doesn't like me very much. Here's the, the clip that was on Twitter. It's very short. Check it out. Lesson children. Um, as far as surgeries, you know, double... Wait, giving kids the puberty blockers after they've been confirmed gender dysphoric and they've consented and their therapists have consented and their doctors have consented and their parents have consented and they've been persistent in gender dysphoria for a minimum of six months... Yeah, that's actually a good thing, Matt. Oh, six whole months, you say? Well, uh, we all know that no child would outgrow a phase after six months. Six months is when it's set in stone. I have never seen my own kids be interested in something or go through a phase that, that lasts six whole months. I mean, six months, this is their identity now. Might as well chemically castrate them, right? What else are we supposed to do? I mean, we could do exactly what we had already been doing for all of human history up until 18 seconds ago. We could just let kids go through their phases, let them grow out of it, instead of locking them in place and turning an awkward moment into a lifelong identity crisis. We could do that. But before we get too far in uh, addressing Hunter's points, we, we should be fair and get the entire context. I had a little bit of a back and forth with him on uh, Twitter yesterday where we, uh, he fleshed out his argument, such as it is. He explained that children can consent to these, quote, treatments because the parents and doctors also consent. I asked, well, how does the consent of the adults somehow validate the consent of the child? In other words, if a child cannot consent to making permanent life-altering decisions, how does the consent of the adult around the child change that? And he responded that he's only talking about puberty blockers, not the cross-sex hormones or surgeries. In fact, he clarified that hormones and surgery should wait until the child turns 18, according to, you know, by his, in his opinion. But, but, Puberty blockers are different because they are a life-saving medical intervention, he claimed. He also noted that I am an ape and I should go F myself. Now, when I asked how it could ever be appropriate to chemically castrate a child, which is what the puberty blocker does, he answered this, quote, firstly, too much Tylenol can kill you. They aren't death pills. Puberty blockers can be detrimental if given in large doses, but beneficial when given in proper doses. Why is this so hard for your chimp brain to grasp? Medicine can be good. Too much medicine can be bad. He later insisted again, smaller doses of puberty blockers are not chemical castration. I'm fine with puberty blockers for minors. Surgery and hormones shouldn't be given until uh, unless 18 years or older. Go back to being the creepy dude hanging outside the high school, you degenerate scum. Now, I had to ask about three or four times for any evidence that puberty blockers are life-saving, as he claimed. And finally, after furiously Googling for whatever random studies he could find, but certainly not read, he responded, quote, sure, I've attached some evidence below. Since you're too retarded to read yourself, firstly, here's a cohort of trans people over 40 plus years showing that no increase of suicide was present after transition. Although the suicide risk remained higher, this was due to social issues, not transition. Secondly, here's a study which found that puberty suppression 
and affirmation care was correlated with a 70% decrease in suicidal thoughts. So again, go F yourself, you pathetic ape man. Okay, so now everyone's up to speed. A few points, Hunter. First of all, you appear to be about 13 years old, but as far as I know, you're actually a full-grown man, technically, which means that you should understand by now that a weak argument doesn't become strong just by tacking an insult onto the end of it. Actually, that makes your weak argument look even weaker, and it makes you look like a child in the process, and this is a special problem for you since you already look like a child. And if, if you are going to go the insult route, you probably don't want to throw terms like degenerate around. Remember, you're the one in this conversation passionately defending the right of a doctor to give a child the same drug they use to chemically castrate sex offenders. I'm on the anti-child castration side of discussion. You're on the pro side. So you're free to stake out that ground if you want, but you are unfortunately precluded from ever calling anyone else a degenerate ever again in your entire life. Second, uh, I'm afraid that I'm not impressed by the ability to Google a study that confirms whatever conclusion you'd already landed on and then fling it at the other side after briefly skimming the abstract. Okay, it's not how you, how you win an argument. You don't just go to Google, studies that confirm what I already believed. Oh, here's one, see? The problem with the study food fight is that two can always play at that game, and in this case, I can play it better. I have, for example, the most thorough study ever conducted on this subject, which spanned 30 years and found that suicidality is highest for trans people 10 to 15 years after medical transition. Highest. You, on the other hand, have one study that focuses on people who transitioned as adults, not as children, and which, according to you, found that there was no increase in suicide rate. Not that there was a notable decrease, but that there was no increase. And that the suicide rate was still much higher than the general population. Now, you blithely declare that this, that this higher rate of suicide was due to, quote, social issues, not the transition, because, uh, what, you somehow know why all these people killed themselves? How do you know that? Well, I mean, well, you made it up, of course. And whatever the reason for the suicides, the fact remains that the rate, the suicide rate, is still very high. And so that would seem to be a pretty good indication that the transition meant to prevent that outcome failed to prevent it. And this is the study you provided to prove your point. You also give another study which claims uh, these findings, and I'm, and I'm reading now. Quote, in this prospective cohort of 104 trans and non-binary youths aged 13 to 20 years, re receipt of gender-affirming care, including puberty blockers and gender-affirming hormones, was associated with 60% lower odds of moderate or severe depression and 73% lower odds of suicidality. Okay, well, at least this one pretends to actually prove your point rather than directly refuting it like the other one. But do you, do you, uh, you know anything else about this study? Like who funded it? How was it conducted? How did they find their study subjects? How did, they, how did the researchers guard against things like selection bias? Did they rely entirely on self-reported data? Do you understand how infamously unreliable self-reported data is? How do they quantify suicidal thoughts? A 70% decrease in suicidal thoughts, how do you quantify that to begin with? Of course, you haven't considered any of this, but it doesn't really matter because there's a fatal problem here. Well, there's a lot, but let's just focus on one. And it's, it's the same one shared by nearly every study claiming to prove that gender-affirming care has positive re results. The problem is this, and you would know this if you read the thing that you Googled, which next time you should think about doing that. The results are based on a 12-month follow-up. Okay, they report that these kids, 12 months after beginning the transition, 
say that they feel better. You know what that tells us? You know what it proves? Absolutely nothing. Not one single thing. I am not surprised that kids have been kids who have been told that transition will solve their problems would then report shortly afterwards that it has indeed solved their problems. Um, if you gave a 13-year-old a really ugly tattoo, it's pretty certain that he'd still think it was cool when he's 14. And if the thir- if the 13-year-old gets a tattoo and then at 14 says, I still like this tattoo, it would be very stupid for you as an adult to say, well, look, see, it turns out getting the tattoo was a good idea. He's 14 and he still likes it. So the question is not how the 13-year-old feels at 14. The question is how will he feel five years from now, 10 years, 20 years? How does the adult version of the same child feel now that he has to live with the consequences of decisions that he made as a child? Regret is not likely to set in within the first year, though it very well might. Usually it takes longer. And you'll notice that many of these studies, they stop doing the follow-ups with the patients at precisely the moment when the, when the regret might really start setting in. What we need are long-term follow-ups with people who transitioned as children. But as I'm constantly having to explain, there aren't any reliable studies like that because we just started doing this to children on this scale very recently. So these kids are the test case. They are the guinea pigs. But anyway, you never answered my question. I asked for evidence that puberty blockers are life-saving. You shouldn't need a survey to tell me that. It should be a relatively easy thing to quantify. Um, There was no such thing as a puberty blocker until recently. And if these blockers are life-saving medications, then that would mean that billions of children lived at a time historically when the life-saving medication was not available to them. And that would mean that a great many children died because they didn't have access to it. Okay, then, give me some examples. Who died due to a lack of access to this life-saving drug? You're saying it's life-saving. That should mean that many, many children have died because they didn't have access to it. So can you give me some examples? How many children died because there were no puberty blockers available? We should be able to see in history this enormous wave of child deaths due to a lack of chemical castration. Do we? I mean, I could quite easily point to deaths that happened because penicillin hadn't been invented yet, for example. So where are the historical deaths that we can pin on a lack of puberty blockers? This is a life-saving drug. Isn't that what you said? Where's the historical evidence? Do you have even a single shred of it? No, of course you don't. Now, it is interesting, though, that uh, you you can't bring yourself to endorse cross-sex hormones and surgeries for minors. At first blush, this this would seem to make you slightly more reasonable than the other child sexual mutilation advocates. But upon further evaluation, it actually makes your position even more incoherent, if that's possible. After all, the very medical establishment that you trust implicitly when it comes to puberty blockers also says that hormones and surgeries can be life-saving medical interventions for children. So why do you trust them on the blockers, but not on the hormones and surgeries? If they're lying, or let's be very generous, catastrophically mistaken about the latter two, doesn't it stand to reason that the same would apply to the first? Blockers, hormones, surgeries, they're all part of the same process of medical, quote, affirmation. What you're saying is that you agree with step one, but you think they're wrong about steps two and three. This might not be an insurmountable logical problem for you, except that the only reason you agree with step one is simply because you're taking their word for it. They claim that puberty blockers save lives, and you believe them. But why don't you believe the rest of the story they tell? And if you don't, then have you considered that your skepticism should be more consistently applied? 
Third, finally, have you thought about just using your common sense? Have you, has that thought occurred to you? You tried to rely on studies. That blew up in your face. You want to appeal to authority, except that even you can't figure out whether you should trust these authorities or not. You're all kinds of confused. You don't know which way is up, which way is down. Maybe consider applying your own mental faculties to this situation. Here's a very simple question. Does it make sense to you? Does it actually make sense that a young boy might, in some sense, be a girl somehow, necessitating the use of chemical castration drugs to suppress some of the physical effects of male puberty? Does that proposition make sense? Does it make sense to take a boy who is male and try to alter uh, you know, him in some way in an effort to make him into or make it appear as though he has been made into something he can never be? Does it make sense to medically affirm the boy's confusion rather than trying to treat and heal the confusion? I think you know that it doesn't. I think you're smart enough to know that it doesn't. At least I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt on that point. A benefit that you perhaps haven't earned. Though you have earned your turn today being, of course, canceled. And that'll do it for this portion of the show as we move over to the members block. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed.